Good evening, and you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Rested and refreshed from an entirely accidental hiatus. I apologize for the break in service, and I hope we make it up to you this year, but sometimes things happen for a reason. Reasons like you simply cannot do one more goddamn thing during the holidays, or you will end up checked into a sanitarium. Uh, so if we were gone for a couple weeks, trust me, uh, I was recuperating in front of a roaring fire and petting soothing Labradors uh, for the duration of my break. Uh, so if you wonder where your your show was these last couple weeks, it was in recuperation phase for a better 2013. Uh, but anyway, speaking of sanitariums, I've reassembled some of our recurring guests from 2012 to talk about their favorite games from last year, trends they noticed, and what hopes they bring with them in, into the new year. Uh, so first, we welcome our former 3MA intern, Soren Johnson. Soren, welcome back to the show. Well, it's an honor to be back. Uh, we also welcome back our friend Dave Heron, game designer at XMG. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. And finally, we welcome designer John Schaefer, fresh from visiting Troy in Canada. Yes, it's good to be here. Thanks, guys. I was super jealous looking at your photos and uh, badly wished I could have been up there just, you know, playing board games and talking strategy. <laughs> um, but I guess that's kind of the day job, too. Yep, yep. Well, you'll have your turn here in a couple weeks, so... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, John, I figured we'd start with you because, you know, before the show you mentioned that you had uh, an obvious pick and then, shockingly, an even more obvious pick uh, for, for your standout games of 2012. So why don't we, why don't we start, start with your slightly less obvious pick? What, what's it, what, 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 surprise us. Okay, so my not-as-obvious pick for my, oh, one of my favorite games of the year in the strategy genre is XCOM. So, uh, and it's the less obvious one because the other one I've talked at end, endless lengths about in the past. Uh, but XCOM, I think, really did a good job of bringing strategy game to the consoles. And that's something that every, cl- every game claims it's going to do. And I really felt like XCOM finally bridged that gap in a way. Uh, I played it on the PC personally. Um, but I know a lot of people didn't, and it's done fairly well for itself on the console. So I thought that that was a very big game, uh, not just of the year, but also um, just in, in recent times. And I hope it opens the door a little bit to more games on the consoles. As, as, as time has gone by, you know, it sort of seems like a lot of, you know, a, a pattern we see year after year is, you know, there's a game that comes out and gets a ton of early praise, and then almost inevitably there's sort of a backlash as, you know, the flaws become a little more apparent. You know, have you had any sort of, like, you know, moments of, like, I don't know, disillusionment with XCOM where you start to realize, like, ah, oh, this isn't quite as good as I initially thought? I think there is a little bit of that, uh, and I think... Part of that comes out of the basic design philosophy for the game. So on, in, in one sense, the design of XCOM is very tight, which is great. As a designer, uh, you really admire it when games do that and pull that off. But there is a, kind of a cost to a, a really tight design a lot of times, and that is uh, you have fewer features in total, or you have fewer overlapping systems, and in, in a lot of cases that actually reduces the amount of replayability a game has. Uh, so a game might be really tight and really fun the first few times you've played it, but after that you've kind of felt like you've been there and done that, and there's not as many crazy things that can happen. Uh, in the original XCOM games, uh, you know, just about anything could happen, and it was wild and it was crazy, and some people loved it and some people hated it, but uh, this is kind of a more mild-mannered uh, XCOM for, for a new generation. And, and that's one thing I would say is uh, important to note about the game, and that it's 
not really a sequel to the original, and I, a lot of times it's called a re-envisioning. I'm not even sure I would call it that. I think it takes a, some of the themes from the original games, but it puts a brand new spin on it. Uh, it's it's almost a completely different game. Uh, so that's in some ways it's good, in some ways it's not. And I think that being compared to the original, uh, for obvious reasons, kind of hurts it a little bit. I'm just going to pause for a moment here and appreciate the irony of the designer of Civilization V talking about the shortcomings of a tight design. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, uh, no, I, I enjoy it. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, Soren, I'm sorry to cut you off there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, XCOM certainly is, you know, the big strategy game of the year in, in, in many ways. And, you know, I thought, you know, Fraxis did a really great job with it. I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. And it's been really great to hear how many people say um, that, you know, they don't play strategy games, they don't play turn-based games, but they've got really sucked into, into XCOM. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's a very, it's a very core strategy game. It, it's not, you know, it's not a dumbed-down strategy game. But... I think there is something kind of going on that, you know, John's referring to about, you know, the slight difference between the, not slight, but the difference between the original and this one. And it's a real interesting lesson in the trade-offs you make as a game designer. Um, And what seems to be happening is that the original XCOM seems a bit more like a simulation and the current XCOM seems a bit more, you know, a bit more board gamey, right? A little more chunkier, a little tighter. Um, and it, there's not really a right or a wrong side of the fence there. It just slightly changes the audience that might enjoy your game, right? Like, they're, generally speaking, I, I have heard, you know, from some people who say they haven't been able to get into the current XCOM, and usually when they break it down, they're able to get to, down to this, this sense that they really like the sort of the simulation aspects of the original XCOM, and, you know, there's a lot more uh, potential chaos, a lot more, you know, variance and deviation between, you know, what can happen on a mission. Um, and I, I mean, I think I heard Jake, like, kind of address this directly, uh, Jake, the lead designer, Jake Solomon. Um, he, you know, he said, like, yeah, you know, it, for better or worse, you could you could sort of call the original XCOM a simulation. And that's not necessarily true of this version. Um, XCOM, I think for me was my most anticipated, uh, game of the year. And I, I think I said as much, uh, on the review podcast that we did, uh, the original was my favorite game pretty much of all time. It's why I came into the game and I was so happy with how it was executed. Um, but now I guess five months, no, four months after it's released, I mean, I'm still playing it, but, uh, it is sort of falling apart, uh, for me, the particularly the, the strategy aspect the tactics i think is really solid they did a really good job but a lot of the elements of the strategy game i just i don't think they were fully baked um i think it takes away so i'm actually more excited about its impact on i think the potentially larger you know what john John was mentioning that are we bringing in a different crew of people into the strategy world yeah i definitely agree with that a a little bit in that Certainly as someone who's a big fan of strategy games, uh, you know, just five years ago when I started doing this, it sort of felt like strategy games were so completely on the fringe, you know, with the exception of like the Civilization franchise. It was really like, you know, just trying to get, you know, mentioned in the mainstream discussion was really kind of a futile effort. And I think it's been... uh, you know, kind of chicken soup for the soul, I guess. You know, just seeing like XCOM suddenly be like one of the hot, you know, one of the hottest games of the year, uh, really, and sort of mentioned uh, in in a lot of you know game of the year uh, contexts. That said, I you know I, I I tend to agree with you, Dave. I think you know the strategy aspect. 
I have a hard time saying it's 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 half baked. I think it's 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 really sort of lacking in amb- you know lacking in ambitions. It's, it's trying to sort of walk you through this progression and this in in this linear campaign that really ends up making a lot of these decisions just sort of questions about timing. Really, like the same stuff's going to happen. It's gonna happen. There's not gonna be a, you know right. there's no there's no issue about it. Uh, but then at that point, you know the entire strategy game becomes just a question of you know at your convenience do this thing uh it's a it's a sort of crude gating system that i think you know on repeated playthroughs kinds of fall it kind of falls apart in some frustrating ways yeah i think so uh to clarify you know or be a little bit more specific about the half bait uh, uh sort of comment where that i find is that the at its heart uh xcom is about i think about making um meaningful choices that often in a tactical game can rely on one member of your team surviving one not that is boiled down to you know you level them up you make an, you make a choice along that path you know you either uh have extra smoke grenades or you have extra medical med packs um in the strategy uh, sort of section with the manufacturing the research there seems to be an opportunity for them to have sort of continue that line of mutually exclusive choices but it never really got there because of balancing you know i never ran out of resources which meant i could always manufacture everything i wanted to i you know i didn't ever had to make a choice of do i have three very well equipped marines and you know three un un sort of uh, you know less optimally uh, uh equipped marines i just always had six with exactly what they wanted i never had to choose whether to uh get plasma sniper rifles or plasma rifles it was just i'll just get both um so that's sort of what i meant is i think i think had it had a little bit more time to mature and and balance it could have tweaked those things to make to make some more meaningful choices uh, yeah, and I do wish actually that maybe gear were destroyed when someone gets killed. Like presumably, if somebody gets shot to hell in Titan armor, the Titan armor itself is no longer effective as armor. Uh, so that would have seemed like you know a way to sort of raise the stakes. But that said, I, I will say that I, I sort of had this little lull with XCOM, uh, you know, in November I'd say, where I just wasn't playing it as much, and I started, you know, I, I, I sort of felt like I was I was over the game a little bit and done with it. Um, and then since coming back from break, I've picked it back up. And, you know, you know, with those limitations, you know, set, setting them aside, boy, you know, that, that, that core tactical play is just so much fun. I, I you know, I, I just, I keep coming back to it. Definitely. And I think, you know, to John's original point, I think it really did, uh, it has this potential of expanding the market. You look at this past Steam sale, XCOM is still in sort of every day. It was, you know, in the top three downloads for Steam, um, which is something that we're not seeing in in maybe uh, the retail environment or, you know, in, in the world that I come from, the, the, the iPhone mobile space. Uh, you know, strategy games just don't get their due. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's, I think, definitely notable about XCOM is in many ways you can kind of look at 2012 as kind of the year of consequences in gaming, you know, kind of the rediscovery of the value of that. And, you know, XCOM, I think, in terms of sort of sheer numbers, was definitely the tip of the spear for that. No, very much so. I definitely feel that, you know, XCOM was a game that whether or not you were playing with, uh, you know, Iron Iron Man mode uh, active or not, it was definitely a game that... <clears throat> discouraged um you know exploiting saves or anything like that it was definitely a game that re- like re- like all of its intensity came from the fact that everything you know should you know you, you sort of play it as it lays 
uh, and it was, it was, you know, when, when things go badly wrong in that game, uh, you know, the, the next step is how, you know, how to go from basically managing the A team to managing, you know, the C team uh, and trying to get a bunch of rookies back into fighting shape. Uh, so I, I definitely, you know, I definitely feel that, yeah, X, X, XCOM was definitely did a great job of reminding players why it's valuable to live with defeat. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, so much has, you know, gaming has kind of just been in this long, almost decade-long transition of becoming more and more um, accessible and oftentimes sort of stomping on, you know, consequences and your your decisions actually mattering. That I think there's almost a generation of players that's just has never really seen this type of a game before, you know, in a you know, in, in sort of a mainstream way, and that's 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 really that's really cool. I mean, especially that that game actually was part of the XCOM lineage. So, Soren, what uh, was one of your what you know what was one of your standout games for this year? Uh, well, to me, definitely the standout game of the year. Uh, I'll beat John to the punch. Is uh, ah. Unity, Unity of Command. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I can't believe how exciting a war game this was. You know, it's not, you know, war games is a war games is you know it's kind of a you know, you know it's a moribund genre, really, right? There's, there's not a lot of action happening there, and um, you know, I can't think of very many. You know, with, if a war game works on a PC, it's usually kind of in spite of itself, as opposed to here's a game which I feel like I could give any designer and say you could learn something from this game. Right, and that's right. really remarkable for a war game. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 uh, and uh, many people have said this, but you know the, the great thing about Union Command is that it has the courage to be about one thing, right? And that that one thing is supply supply lines, um, right. which of course doesn't necessarily sound so exciting, but you know when you play it, you know you you see you know how interesting this is. You know a lot of a lot of games sort of dip their toe in supply, you know, but this game is oriented completely around that. Right. You know, a lot of games is like, well, as long as you can trace, you know, some sort of line back to, you know, the, you know, the side of the map or the specific point, the units are fine. You know, this game has a very, you know, complex and detailed system of, you know, you know, how far you can stretch from these things and, you know, roads extend your supply, you know, much better than, you know, than, than other types of terrain. Um, and it gives you that, you know, that great overlay where, you know, right. you can, you know, you get all the numbers and you see how far it stretches. And, you know, I almost wish they went further, like what I really miss, and maybe this is in the game, I just haven't found it, but, you know, the, the opposite, or an overlay for uh, the, the enemy to see how, how their supply lines stretch, right? Um, because, you know, I think that that's the, the funnest part of the game could potentially be, you know, cutting off the other side's supply, right? You know, like maintaining your own supply is important. And that's that's the great, you know, sort of core of, of the, the gameplay. But I think it would, there would even be more payoff if the game really, um, you know, helped you figure out how to, you know, isolate your, isolate your uh, opponent's troops. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, as you said, unit of command. Uh, you, like you beat me to the punch. That was that was my <laughs> obvious choice because uh, anybody that's read any of my my writing or listened to me on other podcasts has heard me talk about unit of command ad nauseum. But uh, just to uh, go back to that well again, uh, it it's really easy to learn, especially for like you said, a war game. Uh, it's very tightly designed. There aren't superfluous elements, and it's it's very focused. And I've actually spoken a fair bit with the designer of Unit of Command, uh, Tomislav Uzalak. He's from Croatia. Um, he's the head of 2 by 2 Games. And he, he mentioned that when he started working on the game, it was, it was much more traditional. 
but he really came at the design from the point of theme. He wanted the battles to feel like actual battles from World War II, where there are fronts and, and maneuvers and cutting uh, enemy forces off. And uh, without supply and without zone of control, uh, it just didn't do that. So he actually implemented some of these systems with the explicit goal of making it feel more like the actual war. And as a result, uh, came up with a very innovative strategy game that, uh, that is very, very popular now. So it's it's great to see that sort of process go through from uh, start to finish. And it, it just goes to show how important iteration can be. Uh, and, and I know that uh, our other designer friends on the podcast here will agree with that. You know, definitely, I I, I want to have Tomislav on the uh, on the podcast to talk about uh, Red Turn uh, before too long, the DLC expansion for Unity of Command. But you know, what you just said there is is really fascinating because so often that seems to be that idea that you know how can I make this more realistic is usually a bad question to ask, uh, <laughs> particularly from war, war game designers. You know, when you hear a war game designer, you know, asking, I want this to be, you know, truer to life, that usually leads awful places. Uh, and so it's interesting that here it, it led to this sort of stroke of, uh, you know, genius simplicity. Well, I, I think I think the key point here is is not necessarily what's in Unity Command, but what, what is not in Unity of Command. Like, if you take out, a, if you take out all the supply rules, like the the... The actual, you know, sort of combat mechanics are actually fairly simple and fairly straightforward, right? There's there's not a lot of, of complexity and you know weight and uh, to the design there. So it, it's it's I think it's really what's really important is what they left out to give room for the supply to be center stage. I mean, to me, that's what makes it work. It's as you point out, Rob. It's it is very interesting that in getting closer to reality actually results in a better game. It really comes down to priorities. A lot of times, designers uh, that aren't as good will try to add things to the game just to add it. So, um, you know, there was uh, there's different types of ammunition and armor penetration ratings on on them. So we should add that because it existed. But obviously, adding that um, may make experience more fun for some people. But it's not going to just flat out make it a better game. Uh, but I think when you're coming at it from with the goal of hitting the theme perfectly. I think that's when uh, uh, design really works. And it's interesting. Uh, something that uh, we've talked about on this podcast in the past is uh, the kind of relation between theme and mechanics. And I really think that nearly always, as long as you are using the theme to help guide your design, then you'll end up with a better game. And I think Unity of Command is an excellent example of that because instead of, uh, again, approaching realism for realism's sake. It was approaching it for the sake of hitting this theme dead on. What is it like to command a battle like Stalingrad? And uh, Tomislav really pulled it off. Dave, have you gotten much of a chance to play with uh, Unity of Command? It's it's sort of on my, not pile of shame, it's on the pile of I need to spend a lot more time on it. Uh, that's going to be my next, my next sort of uh, foray into a, 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 a hardcore war game. Just, you know, one, one thing, <clears throat> one last thing to say about Unity of Command is, I, I guess, so, you know, sort of what you were talking about there, John, with the, you know, the tendency to just add a little more detail here, uh, you know, what, what ammunition does it have, what's the armor penetration like, you know, I guess this is an example of... Um, you know, one of the one of the things you learn about sort of building a model of anything is, you know, 
you know when you're when you're building a model, the question is what do you what do you take out really? Because a model is supposed to simplify things really and make it uh, easier to understand, yet also create uh, you know slightly more you know have a slightly more convincing outcomes when you uh, put different scenarios into that model. And then the Unity command passes that test in part because it very cleverly just you know sort of looks at this one particular type of war and and says you know well what what mattered here. Uh, and the truth is that a lot of you know a lot of the stuff that we associate with you know greater realism and such, uh, you know, in many you know for this type of war at this level, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, unity of command is about a you know fighting a type of war at a level of command where all that really matters is you know keeping your tanks filled with gas, and that's all <laughs> war comes down to in this game. And uh, in in doing that and keeping it that simple and throwing out all the stuff that makes it more realistic with you know what model panther tank was deployed at this battle throwing all that aside you went you you get something that that plays much more like you know the history you read uh which is uh i i think i think very interesting it's something more war game designers should should take note of that you know unity of command feels more like world war ii than a lot of games that you know try to get it down to uh you know every last rivet Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- that's something that I actually wrote uh, about on my website, which is uh, my article on abstraction. And uh, one of the things that's kind of surprising is that oftentimes games can feel more realistic the less realistic they are. So uh, by abstracting, you are taking away that which doesn't matter, and you're focusing on that which does. So if you abstract in the right manner, you can actually make a game feel more like what you think it's supposed to feel like than than if you had more stuff and that's you know what you and you and Soren were saying so it's yeah it's very it's very interesting and it's a very good lesson i think for a lot of other designers to take up so dave we turn to you uh what what did you bring the show and tell well i think i think uh we'll start sort of at the beginning of the year for me crusader kings 2 was an early sort of front runner for my favorite game of the year mm-hmm. um it was i think the first Paradox game that I really sat down with and fought through the UI and uh, you know, played, played for more than one or two games. Uh, I'd played a little EU, I'd played a little Hearts of Iron, and you know, I can't, okay, I turned on Hearts of Iron. I didn't really play it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, but I liked, I, you know, I, I powered through, I watched some YouTube videos. I'm not going to be ashamed that I had to go there and uh and and i just got really really into i think probably what everyone that loves eu loves about about the paradox games and i really was really in, uh, engaged with um those little choose your own adventure sections mm-hmm. that made it really personal um and i i was really sort of fascinated with the the sort of the lineage a- aspect this notion of like the, there's not a fail state or 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 sometimes you're even trying to manufacture your own your own death so that you can you can yep. uh, get the ruler that you really want the the younger brother that has all those good traits that you want you know so um that was that was uh kind of interesting um the 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 one sort of sort of takeaway uh from it so now 10 months later is when i think back to crusader kings my 
the stories I tell are about individual rulers or relationships. Uh, you know, I did this with a brother, or I I, I, I uh, systematically ritually abused this uh, this child such that you know when he became of age, he would be completely impotent and couldn't take over my realm. Like, the, <laughs> right? Like these are the stories to tell, but I don't tell the story of. Uh, this is this lineage and it ended up with me winning or there's no, I I never really got this complete um, start to finish uh, experience. It's for me, looking back, it's this mosaic of, well, I was, you know, the Prince of Castile and then I was up in Sweden and then I was the the King of France. Like it was never, uh, not really. So I don't know, I haven't really quite figured out if I love the game or if I'm, just sort of enamored with it <laughs> man i'd actually forgotten that crusader kings came out this year <laughs> I, ten, 10 months seems like so long ago now that uh, I, I just assumed it was a 2011 game and didn't even think about it but um yeah crusader kings is, is definitely a highlight for for the last year ish and i think it's it's kind of interesting in comparison with a game like xcom uh because it's almost more like the original XCOM from 20 years ago, uh, and this is something we were talking about earlier, where it's almost more of a simulation. You're experiencing uh, this narrative, this these interweaving systems kind of ebbing and flowing, and crazy things can happen, and you remember those, and it's an uh, unbelievably memorable experience. Uh, but maybe in terms of per- specific game design, the features may not line up with uh, a different type of game that's more tight, but it still offers something that's very appealing and really hits uh, a sweet spot. And honestly, I think it's done some things that no other strategy game has ever done uh, with the with the characters and the stories that are created. Uh, you know, everyone I've talked to that's ever played that game has had some great story about you know their their crazy insane leader that murdered their wife or you know it 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 can be all across the board, and that's part of what makes the game so so much fun. Soren, did you spend uh, any time with? Crusader Kings? Uh, yeah, this is mine that you know I'm sort of looking forward to play, but haven't <clears throat> haven't dug into yet. I guess uh, one thing I'm curious about is how much how much of kind of the normal EU trappings is in Crusader Crusader Kings too. Okay, so I, just speaking for myself here, I find that a harder question to answer with every new Paradox game. <laughs> sure. Because there's so much consistency across their designs, and they they all. They all kind of look kind of the same, and sure. a lot of the way, a lot of the things they use are are very similar. A lot of the interface elements and everything. Right. But like, what Crusader Kings is actually about, and the type of things you were trying to control, and your way of interacting with the world, is so completely divorced from a European Universalis, which is itself pretty divorced from, like, say, a Victoria too. Sure. Uh, that it, you know, it's. It's weird because in some ways, you know, I understand why people, and I think you've said this actually before on the podcast, you know, Paradox make the same game over and over and over. Right. Uh, but at the same time, they make a different game every time. And so Crusader Kings 2, I, t- I tend to think Crusader Kings 2 is, I guess, more distinctive than most of the other Paradox games that you're probably thinking of. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, you know, whenever I do jump into a new Paradox game, it's going to definitely be Crusader Kings 2. I mean, everything, everything I've heard about you know, sort of the dynasty systems and, you know, uh, how, you know, all the, all the interactions that happen between different, um, you know, different members of a family and how even, even the idea of like who the player is, is this kind of really nebulous concept in the game, you know, sounds really fascinating. Um, but I, I kind of, 
you know, most of the times whenever I, I jump into Paradox game, you know, the experience for me is you know, there's just a whole bunch of sliders, and I'm just kind of moving them around. I'm not really sure what the result is going to be, and then oh, yeah, when this something is, this happens... This is the least slidery game they've ever made. Okay, all right. <laughs> so sliders are low. Because I, I, what I fear is going to happen is, you know, I play the game, and I'm like, I find this aspect of the game awesome and fascinating, but, like, the rest of it I wish they had just cut out. So maybe but maybe they've already... Maybe they moved in that direction, which would be great. Yeah, this is, I think, going to be right up your alley. Uh, it's, it's funny because, as you pointed out, Rob, it's basically the exact same engine pl- playing out the exact same way, and yet... The experience of playing it is so vastly different. The map is—it's there and it's—it's it's important, but it's not the game. The game is the characters and the relationships and how they exist in your head, and it's—it's it's fascinating how well that works. And I—I'm so glad that they that they managed to 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 make that work because there have been other games that have tried to do that, um, including uh, the original Crusader Kings, and and kind of fell short. But it's it's great that they were able to kind of twist that engine in such an interesting direction and almost completely flip the focus of the game 180 degrees on something else. Yeah. I mean, as a designer, you know, when, you know, you know, I sort of heard the concept of the game, I could immediately see how it could work because definitely, you know, Royal lineage is a bit of a game itself, right? And anything that is already sort of a game is going to translate to a game very well. Um, So, you know, it'd be really exciting if they, if they were really, um, careful about, or not careful, if they were if they were really aggressive about what type of stuff they cut from the game that they felt you know people would normally expect from a paradox game. So, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, I I enjoy that. I mean, this is not a game where you know I th- I think back on what I did in that game, and I don't think of a lot of governance necessarily. What passed for governance was more keeping an eye on my greedy bastard stepchildren mm-hmm. or cousins or. Uh, you know, my liege lord, and just, you know, that's, you know, in, instead of, like, looking at tax rates and worrying about what was under construction in a province, I was actually more looking at, like, loyalty ratings and what sure. sort of relationships were happening around me. You're still, like, amassing armies and conquering territories and, you know, managing all that stuff, correct? You are, but it's 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 more, it's simpler, I think. Right. Okay. It, it's simpler, and it's tied into the dynastic stuff so well because again like and this is where where i think like a game like eu eventually broke down is just to hit this point where if you governed competently you basically had unlimited soldiers for whatever you needed right um you know for whatever you need to do you could just keep putting troops in the field crusader kings is all about like and it never really leaves this behind that you know the the weirdness of feudal armies right where you actually only command so many guys and right. so it really totally depends on relationships when it's time to go to war. Right. And I think, I think the, the game that happens before the actual war, the how can I manipulate the world around me and the relationships that I can then justify going to war and, and manipulate the, the people who may or may not like me to, to join that war. Um, and if it's anything other than going on a holy crusade... Um, that that becomes, I think, a very large investment, getting those those reasons to go to war. One thing that's really unique about this game compared to other Paradox games, too, is playing smaller countries is actually no less interesting than playing the bigger ones. So in a game like uh, EU or Hearts of Iron, if you're playing you know, one of these little tiny uh, principalities or you're playing Poland, the game is almost completely pointless. 
but in Crusader Kings 2, because the characters are the game, you can play as, as a one-province or a two-province uh, kingdom and still get as much out of the game as you could with a much larger uh, country. So if uh, if you are the kind of person that doesn't want to have to worry about all that economic management and, and filling with sliders and, and fighting big wars, then you can, you can still get the experience of what Crusader Kings provides by playing one of these small uh, duchies and and it's it's remarkable how well it works actually i i think that almost in from a certain point of view that also sort of points toward one of i think the game's shortcomings is that i think it has a sweet spot where mm-hmm. you have a certain like you're in a certain position where you have just enough power to have influence on the world uh but not so much that you're basically the prime mover of everything that happens but more importantly though the higher you rise the more you have to deal with all these secondary characters and then tertiary characters and this is a game where um you know it's sort of like Don Corleone's wedding day right where suddenly just mm-hmm. every Tom Dick and Harry is coming through, you know, asking you to adopt this kid and arrange this marriage, and you know, can I get married to this, you know, this woman from another court? And it, it hits this threshold where it, you know, if you are if you are doing well enough in the game, you've got all the, you've got this like entourage from hell uh, that has to consult you on every damn thing, and you can't really like it becomes very hard to figure out like. Who do you need to be paying attention to, and which messages can you completely ignore? And I think that I, I don't think I, I don't think Paradox totally solved the uh, scalability uh, of how this game works. Yeah, uh, once you get up to a couple of hundred courtiers, it becomes a problem. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, well, and because in part I think because these relationships are in some ways like so realistic, like you got to invest in them and you got to know like how all these people relate to each other and what their interactions are, that it becomes like getting an entire new hundred people introduced to your circle of acquaintance, and that's just you know what I mean. Like I, I you know, I've got to remember my dad's birthday. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 and and I think I think it does. It even will expose some of the really great sort of aspects of it, like those choose your own adventures. Um, when you are playing as you know one of the princes of, uh, you know, one of the small uh, small areas in like Ireland or Scotland, uh, and you get you know the cheat on your wife event, it's probably someone that you know. It is it is it is a courtier that showed up, or it is it is the sister of the woman who you set your your younger brother up with. But when you're playing as the king of France, all of a sudden the same event will 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 pop up and it's someone that you've never you've never met before. It's like how how is this happening? How is this woman even getting uh in, in into my house, let alone my 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 bedchambers? Uh, so uh, I'm actually interested to know if if anyone. I'm assuming there's been a, a number of mods or like additional events, or I'm sure there's as been a new, community, there's been a bunch of new new content releases. Yeah, but I so I know like official ones. There was there, but has anyone have you, has anyone messed around with any of the community stuff? Uh, I have not. Nope. No, okay. I rarely get time to go back to these things. So. <laughs> but there probably isn't a game this year that I speak so passionately about playing and then when people tell me okay i'm going to download it i go ah well maybe uh, it's not the right thing not the right thing for you so uh, i hope paradox can uh, make a little bit a few more jumps with their ui and then i'll fully be able to start recommending it to my uh, my colleagues to that i i do find that i'm getting in some ways i love the paradox pause uh you know the 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 pause will continuous uh time 
you know, mm-hmm. aspect of these games. On the other hand, though, I, I I am like all their games work this way, and some sometimes I find it sort of hard to sort of get in uh, the flow of the game because I'm so busy. You know, it's like it's like driving a car and stopping to go traffic, um, and, and so it's just. I don't know. It, it, this this is weird. This is a weird complaint, but it's it, it's just it, it's common to all their games. Mm-hmm. And in Crusader Kings too, even this even this game that you know I, I I was really really enjoying, I was I was still having this moment where it's like I would really like it if I did not have to babysit the passage of time quite so much. I, I've always personally had a, a big problem with games that are in real time but are basically expecting you to continually pause it. Like, I find that a really weird, having this really weird pacing, because then I I always feel like I'm not sure how much I sort of should be pausing it, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, where are the crucial decision points? It's not, it's not obvious. Um, And I think if a game doesn't really prompt you for those, and it seems like with Crusader Kings 2, there would be some pretty obvious, you know, clear points where you shouldn't be making decisions, that you kind of wonder what the game would be like if it was just purely (laughs) turn-based. Yeah, this is uh, actually another thing that I just wrote about on my website, which is the difference between turn-based and real-time games. And the Paradox games is, have always kind of straddled that line in a weird way because uh, in a in a plain old turn-based game, you, you take a bunch of time to think about whatever decisions you're going to make, and then you hit enter and they execute. And that's almost the same as how you play a Paradox game, even though right. obviously it's not turn-based. It, like I said, it's kind of this weird hybrid and... Sometimes it works and sometimes it's just weird. Yeah, it usually gives me a feeling of just kind of paranoia, you know, because I kind of feel like it, you know, should I, there's no, there's no real gameplay incentive to kind of like unpausing it, right? Like you might as well just Mm -hmm. keep it paused as long as you can until you've, you know, you've maximized whatever you want to maximize. So, you know, what's, what's that? I, I almost, I almost feel like having fully real time with encouraging pausing is like a, almost a purely bad thing. And I kind of, I'm not sure if I really make that strong a statement, but I've, I've rarely seen it done in a way that I think is, is a positive development, as opposed to really thinking more hard about your design and, and whether it should be a design that has time pressure or it should be a design without it. I, I've definitely seen more of it in, in wargaming. Uh, and, well, even like, so I, yeah, I do think it tends to be generally negative. Um, you know, I, I I look at like the evolution of the Total War series, for instance, and I'm pretty sure when that series started, uh, battles just sort of played out, and you'd pause them. Uh, but I don't think I'm not sure you can get give orders uh, when the series started out while the game was paused. But over time, they increased the pace of the real time battles, uh, so the, everything just started to happen a little faster and it became a little more, uh, you know, arcadey. I guess is the word you'd, you'd use. But then their solution to that, uh, because things just sort of spiral out of control, their solution was to make it pausable and, yeah, and then give orders. And, and it was not hard. a solution. You know, that's, no, that's, that's, that's terrible. It's basically once you can do that, you have to do that if you're if you're you know looking at the game as a challenge. And right, and then you feel like this complete fraud of a commander in some ways because you just like pause the action when things like go to shit. And take a moment to arrange all your pieces again, and all that all that pressure and excitement kind of lifts off. <laughs> I think this is one of the reasons why the paradox games tend to be so uh, the opinions on them vary so widely. Some people just absolutely love them and swear by them, and other people just can't stand them and can't touch them. And there's, uh, I think, a big reason for that is the is kind of the the real time, pausable uh, element to it, uh, and. 
if you're if you're playing it more like an experience where you're just kind of seeing what happens and aren't these things fun, uh, I think it works pretty well. But if you're playing it more as a hardcore game where you want the mechanics to be tight and sharp and, and the flow and the pacing of everything to be as good as it could be, then it kind of doesn't work as well on that on that level. And, and I think they're increasingly you know, kind of aware of that, and it's a bit of a trap, right? Because they've gotten this sort of, they've gotten this design down really well, and, you know, Crusader Kings 2 at least, they're really kind of hitting their stride with it uh, in a lot of ways. But then when I was uh, I was talking to a few people from Paradox uh, this past fall in San Francisco, and they're sort of showing their, their lineup for uh, early this year, and they, you know, they're sort of concerned with that exact that that exact issue you talked about, where, uh, you know, how do we, you know, how do we get people to uh, sort of roll with, you know, roll with the type of games we make, uh, you know, where it's a game where you're just supposed to be okay with sort of letting the game run itself and see what happens and play with it some more and experiment, and then once you've had all this experimentation, then you can play. And in some ways, you know, that's the, that's the appeal of these games. But man, there's also an approach that's going to baffle and turn away a lot of people. And uh, it's it's a tough problem. Um, and then, I mean, I can think of some other games that'd be good to talk about if we... Do you have a game you want to talk about, Rob? <laughs> excuse, excuse me. Sorry, Rob. Actually, you, you guys are taking them all. Uh, no. So I guess... In a weird way, like, uh, you know, I, I sort of, you know, for for, for uh, PC Games and uh, a website I, I work at, um, I, I picked XCOM as, as my game of the year. And I get, you know, as, as a completely new strategy game and everything, it, it really was that for me. Um, it, you know, it was probably the highlight of my year. But really, when I think on, like, what I probably enjoyed the most and played the most this year, it was uh, Sins of a Solar Empire Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the only reason I, you know, I don't quite give it the nod is because Rebellion falls in this weird place between being a an expansion and a sequel. Uh, it's 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 you know, it basically contains their first game and then their their two expansions, but then it also adds a bunch of new stuff. But with with Rebellion, I kind of felt like all that stuff we saw in those previous expansions uh, that had sort of you know, just sort of coarsely stacked on top of each other. Um, with Rebellion, all of that came together really brilliantly because now each faction had, like, two aspects that played differently uh, with things like diplomacy and how much uh, how much they were about aggression or how much they were about uh, turtling. And so suddenly Rebellion uh, created this, like, multitude of new possibilities uh, that I found really exciting and really couldn't stop playing with. Um, and I really did not expect, you know, a boy by this point, how old is Sins of a Solar Empire? Like six years, five years? Five years, yeah. Yeah. I really did not expect, uh, for that game of all games to be sort of completely renewed. Uh, and yet, you know, I look back at the strategy games I played this year, uh, I, I, more than any other, I would say Rebellion captivated me. How have they dealt with sort of the feature creep issue over all of these expansions and, uh, you know, this new sort of like, super expansion i guess you'd say because i mean i definitely enjoyed the original sins um a lot um but you know looking at it from the outside i mean i would kind of assume that it it would deal with an issue where you know these these expansions are kind of plain plain to the core right and so presumably you're just adding more and more stuff each time around which doesn't necessarily add up to a great thing at the end but i mean i've certainly heard great things about rebellion so how how did that come together 
I think part of it is probably the diplomacy expansion did screw things up a little bit. Uh, when when the, I think that was a moment where they had sort of overexpanded and not really figured out how everything should work. And Rebellion, in some ways, was a chance to reintegrate that uh, and, and give you more reasons to play around with the diplomacy. Uh, so I think I think part of it is they've already made a mistake, and Rebellion was kind of a chance to uh, you know not quite patch it, but correct it through some new content. Uh, the other thing, though, the other thing that's interesting about Sins of a Solar Empire is that, you know, I would say from the start, people thought that was a Forex game. And it wasn't. It was it was an RTS, and uh, not, not a terribly complicated one, even at the start. But everything they've done since it came out has made it a bit more of a Forex uh, strategy game. And so by the time you hit Rebellion, now I think it actually is uh, the hybrid it sort of initially pretended to be. And so it doesn't, it feels like less like feature creep and it, it sort of feels more like the game coming into its own. You know, this was always, this was always sort of what we were signing up for. Uh, but now we've just got it. Hmm. So you feel like it's almost been an evolution really more than um, just continue, continually adding stuff to, you know, load the game. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think so. I'm not, you know, I'd be interested to know really uh, how much of that evolution was planned and how much has been sort of, uh, you know, just sort of stumbled upon over the years. Uh, because they, they've sort of expanded it slowly, right? So they've had a right. lot of time to think about everything they've done with it. Sure. But... Well, the, the real test ultimately, would, what is what would a completely new player think of Rebellion? And that's kind of a tough question for probably the, the four of us to answer. Um. Yeah, it's... I, I, think, I think what Sins of Soul Empire has going for it, really, on that score is just it is... It is a gorgeous game, uh, and Rebellion uh, gave it a lot of new. Uh, a, a, I, f- I forget, John. Is it a completely new graphics engine? No, it's the same engine. It's just uh, yeah, there's been lighting. some yeah lighting improvements, particle, pretty much all the art was retextured and added. Yeah. So um, a lot of pretty explosions made. <laughs> More boom boom. More boom boom. Right. So so massive. Yeah. So so really, they just took everything and added just like another layer of fit and finish that uh, really makes it look like you know an awesome episode of Deep Space Nine. And uh, you know, the other thing I guess is with the new units. Um, you know, when they added the Titans, they actually did something the game had lacked for a long time, which is they really finally gave these uh, races. Uh, some really visible personality, uh, you know, in in the units you commanded. They all had ships and everything. And if you read the flavor text on the research trees, uh, you got a sense for what each civilization was about. But I think the addition of the Titans in particular is like this, you know, it's this really cool, um, you know, crossroads of like uh, game design and art design and, uh, you know, almost like implicit instruction. Because when you see a Titan roll off the line, uh, it's kind of this big flashing sign for you know any player who looks at it is like hey dumbass you know see this see this thing this is a manifest manifestation of everything your faction is supposed to be about and so if you're playing like the Terran rebels the uh, tech rebels uh, what you basically have is this gigantic like evil looking uh, space shotgun basically it's just a gun with an engine on it uh, and it's pretty clear you know you go out there and kick ass with it. Um, you know, when you've got, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, the one of the uh, Vasari ships, um, 
you know, it's you know, it, it's it's a world consumer basically. It can just it can just devour an entire world in one place, and it's almost like it's got this like crystalline entity uh, kind of effect on it. That you know, if you if you've watched any Star Trek Next Generation, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but it's got this it's got this sort of delicate, spidery, and uh, fundamentally like evil looking design. So each of these things, each of these things, just from the way they fight, uh, you know, the the special powers they have with it, sort of gives you this hint. Of like, okay, so your race is actually about like raw aggression, or your race is about turtling, and so uh, you know, I think with the Titans and the new factions, they did a good job of uh, giving giving you something to latch onto uh, that would sort of see you through to understanding the rest of the game. Yeah, adding personality to the factions in in a sci-fi game is so incredibly difficult, especially if it's space-based. And I really, I don't think that any game has done as good of a job as Alpha Centauri, and that came out, you know, over a decade ago now. And that that actually uh, reminds me of one of the games that I was really looking forward to this year that kind of didn't do it as much for uh, me, which was Endless I was just going to bring this up. Yeah, <laughs> there was actually sort of a, a, a trio of games that that. So I just I want to put a pin in that, and I just want to say Endless Space, Warlock, uh, Master of the Arcane, and um, oh my God, the name just uh, help me out, John. You were involved in it. You're talking about Elemental? El- Elemental, yes. The oh, the new dear. Elemental. All sort of three games that I was really excited about and all have sort of let me down. So so let's talk about Endless Space, but keep a pin in those other two. <laughs> um, well, I, I think a big part of the problem with Endless Space was honestly the lack of personality. Uh, and just going through the game, it felt very, very mechanical and... I mean, it, it is a space game, ultimately. That's kind of how they go. But uh, as you said, Rob, uh, Sins of a Solar Empire Rebellion did a good job of trying to add a little bit more there. And certainly other games that are land-based in sci-fi universes have done a, a good job. But uh, Endless Space just seems so um, to the metal. And it it kind of didn't have any hook into a theme, uh, You know, something else we've mentioned already. Uh, games like Crusader Kings 2 or Unity of Command, one of the reasons why they're so good and so memorable is because of how well they evoke a mood and a theme, and it just kind of felt empty in uh, when I was playing Endless Space. Yeah, that was definitely one of my major reservations with that game, is is that, I don't know, it, it's it's weird. In, in some ways, this sort of felt like, if you talk, want to talk about trends of the year, it was almost like... 2012 was 2012 was the year of like bizarre empty gestures in the direction of space enthusiasm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think Endless Space was sort of like the apotheosis, and I, in some good ways too. I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty good 4x uh, strategy game uh, that, for whatever reason, I just I can't sustain my, my interest in. Uh, you know, in, in part because it is this it is this barren universe. Um, it's just like, hey, just go out and explore planets and colonize them, and okay, having fun now. Space. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It it felt it just felt so mechanical. It and and it felt I think so familiar, uh, but it didn't sort of trigger those same sort of uh, memory mem- loving memories of like Master of Orion that that I think that I sort of have in like this idea of like space and. Yeah, it just it never clicked. But this stuff is so hard to pull off. I mean, like Sins of a Solar Empire. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it took them years to really, 
make this stuff, uh, you know, tangible in the world in a way. And I don't know, like, if this was always in some sort of, like, story Bible they had, if they always had a sense for the universe and just took them time to build it, or whether it's something that came to them gradually. But we've seen attempts of, uh, you know, just sort of creating a big, rich uh, narrative backdrop for universe uh, completely fail in the past. And I think uh, Elemental, when it, when it first came out in 2010, was an example of this, where you had, uh, you know, Brad Wardell kind of steering the ship and really, you know, really going out there and putting himself out there and saying, you know, this is, you know, this isn't just, this isn't just a strategy game, my friends. This is, you know, this is a fantasy opus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, but the problem is like, how do you, how do you know your stuff's good? And, it, you know, it's not even, the, not even that it has to be cliched. Uh, it, it can't be cliched. Because I think, you know, if you look at, if you look back at Alpha Centauri, you're dealing with a lot of archetypes there. But Alpha mm-hmm. Centauri just makes it work. Well, one thing I always admired about the original Sins was that they didn't, they didn't pretend to, that they were going to make a story, right? They were like, they had sort of the courage to just say, look, we're not, we're not going to do that part, right? Like, we're going to yep. focus on, on just this part of the game. You know, we know that mostly, you know, campaigns and RTSs are terrible anyway. So, you God know, there are, them. there are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, there, there there are characters and there is a setting here, you know, but we're not going to overdo it. And, you know, I guess they just have the courage to be patient on that. Um, I mean, I guess it'd be it's sort of an interesting question why that was okay for them and not okay for Endless Space. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe maybe that comes down to some gameplay issues. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think the, the theme, even though there's no real story in the original Sins of the Solar Empire, there's definitely a theme. And it feels like you're doing something. It feels like you're you're playing an experience. And it's, it's, you know, you touched on this, Rob, endless space isn't a bad game. I mean, you could look at each of the pieces and say, yeah, that works, you know, that works well, uh, that's not too bad, but it just doesn't add up to much. Whereas uh, a game like Sins of Solar Empire right away has that hook and that feel to it that, that works. And in a lot of ways, it's not even the mechanics, I would say, it's just the, the whole feel and style of the game. But see, and this is and this is what interests me because I, I'm gonna be interested to hear you, guys, you you three guys talk about this because on the one hand, like I agree, like I agree with what you're, what you're saying, and I totally from having played the game, I totally know the exact sensation of like vague pleasure yet vague emptiness of playing endless space is like. Mm-hmm. But as designers, aren't you all like listening to yourselves and being like, oh my god, fucking players. <laughs> like, like with their with their vague, half formed like desires, yeah. well, and, I, and it, I like would, I definitely wanted to try to get to, to drill down on what you know John was saying because like he I, I hear what he's saying, but he needs to be more specific about what the difference is because this is this is the thing you're always afraid of as a designer. You know, you'll you'll build this whole system, and mm-hmm. you know you're like, oh, this is you know, look at all this, these great game mechanics, and like the person will take it, and I'll just be like, eh, I you know, I don't know. Just didn't connect, right? And like, where, you know, where's that magical thing? Like, Civ always had that great history hook, you know, and you got so many people just if you stay sort of stayed true to that. Um, but I think in space, I think I think that's really tough. I, I I don't know what that quality is that makes it work. Mm-hmm. Well, part of part of it is uh, in endless space. There's very little interaction or very little characters uh, that play a role in the game, and you could say the same is true about Sins of a Solar Empire, but Sins is really a game about sending big fleets into the battle and then watching them blow stuff up and then slowly expanding your control over the, over the solar system. And it does that very well. A game like Endless Space, you know, what is Endless Space about? What is what is 
you know, a Space Forex game? It's a much harder question to ask, and I think a lot of Forex space games have that same problem. I think right. Master of Orion probably has done the best job of providing that that character and that that sense of purpose and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't played in the, in the space, but the Masters of Orion map is not necessarily that big, right? So, like in in Sins, like what Sins about? Well, I want to be the guy who controls that middle planet, basically. Like that's that's basically what Sins is about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's it's and it is a little bit scary, but. I think forex games have a greater potential than most other genres to fall into the trap of a, a kind of a hollow experience. Yeah, and I think Civ has the advantage of history, as you said, Soren, and you can always latch onto that. But with space, it's just kind of all right. The mechanics are the mechanics, and then you have to use your imagination. If there's nothing for your imagination to latch onto, then it just feels yeah, it feels like what am, what am I doing here? I'm 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 clicking. I'm I'm sending ships around. Okay, right. You know, and, and and a lot of forex based games are just as bland, honestly. And, and I'll say I've I've always been baffled that there are so many forex space games, and so few people have tried to tackle history. It's like everyone's mm-hmm. just shooting themselves in the foot, right? Like it's so much harder. The audience is so much smaller, and you you, do, you just you miss you lose all these natural hooks. You know, it's it's um, to me Civ has felt sort of like The Sims, and this is this big big successful franchise that like. Inexplicit, inexplicably has no competitors, right? Everyone's competing off in this this smaller little uh, little pond somewhere that you know really doesn't justify the amount of uh, you know attention given to it. And and I and I think that the the developers in the space, the designers, like they did shoot themselves in a in a, in their foot by taking on such a large project. And you know, uh, I I could get very specific, but at this point, I think it would be a little bit bit brutal but i found myself continually getting pulled out of the experience like with just simple things like you know their tech tree the layout is completely uh uncomprehensible and you have to like it's very hard to read things and that gets in the way and that pulls you out of the experience and then they have uh uh you know ship customization about technology and people that you have absolutely no interest in and that involves right like like there's there's these elements uh um that 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 like there's very particular things um but it's just wrapped in something that ultimately i don't care about and so i think like those those sort of mistakes or or what like it is a much better uh interface than the paradox game but i'm not compelled to to push through and to go to the internet and find these things so i i think you know, to, to what you brought up there, Soren, I think part of it is, well, 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 part of it is that Fraxis owns that space so completely that I think a lot of people just don't want to get in the ring with civilization. There's civilization, you know, that, you know, well, there goes that niche, uh, you know, whether it's actually a niche is, is debatable. But I, I think the other obstacle is that space is this blank slate. So you can have all those, uh, you know, bullshit forex contrivances uh, go out in the space, and then it's perfect, right? Like, you know, you found new settlements on these nodes that conveniently connected to other nodes, and mm-hmm. you tech up using all these magical, like, space technologies, and all this stuff that, like, we know history doesn't work that way. And civilization is, like, just plausible enough and just relatable enough to sort of, I think, uh, you know, sell itself. People just sort of roll with it. 
But I think, you know, unless you're going to directly clone civilization, I, I suspect a lot of people begin to hesitate. Like, how do I make, you know, how do I make a 4X, uh, you know, set in uh, 18th century, you know, set in, the, right. set in the Enlightenment? How do I do that? Uh, how do I, you know, how do I gamify that? You know, and then you've got, and and then I think you you begin just like creating objections to it, especially because you also know that with history comes, uh, you know, questions of like realism and plausibility. Yeah, I think you have a you have a you have a point there about about sort of the big elephant in the room is Fraxis. Um but then you know you do take civilizations and you add magic and you get warlock, um, and and I don't know if that's necessarily a great a great ploy either so i think i'm with soren and i i wish people would go go at it uh, go at it in a little bit different way there i mean mm -hmm. it would take it it would take no time for each of us to come up with like five sci-fi forex games and five yep. fantasy turn-based games right but there's only one history one right there's always call to power <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Oh. <laughs> speaking of empty games someone out there was just like yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think Call to Power is a really interesting example uh, because I think it falls into a lot of the traps that some of these other 4X games fall into. Uh, for example, in uh, Call to Power 2, I don't know about the first one, I haven't played it, but when you're meeting other leaders and you're conducting diplomacy, there's no visualization of the other leader. It's just you're talking to the Zulus, and it's just completely, it feels completely different, and a lot of people will discount the effect that aesthetics and art and, and audio can have on a game, especially a strategy game, which is supposed to be about the mechanics. But when you're negotiating with this block of text, it's completely different from actually negotiating with a leader. And, uh, you know, that was, I think, a, a good example of uh, a Forks game kind of falling into some of these same uh, pitfalls. Right. Now, let's let's talk about Warlock a little bit since, since uh, you brought that up. Um, I... I um, I had a decent time with Warlock, but it, it kind of really brought out something for me that I think I, I'm really going to think about a lot more when I think about turn-based games, um, which is uh, performance. Um, and I, I don't know how how performed for you guys, but it it, it really kind of chugged for me. Um, and I found that that made the experience really unenjoyable, even if the gameplay itself was fine, because just this concept of like, okay, there's these things I want to try, but it's literally going to take me like five minutes of real time to go through that, right? Because every time I click on something, there's this slow camera thing, and then like the animation takes a while to spin up. Oh and, man, pre-patch you know, Civ five. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and you know and civ 4 had some issues about that as well you know and you know that was one of my big fears heading down the the 3d road and i really i really think looking at these type of games now that the the snappier you can make them the more responsive you can make them makes unlocks this sort of aspect of fun that you know it's hard to it's hard to categorize but is like very real and very tangible once once you're playing a game that just like you know, you're just able to like pop through moves, you know, almost instantaneously. And why not, right? Because these games are they're tiles, they're they're hexes, they're abstractions, they're 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 chits. You know, that's what they are. Yeah, no, I, like you don't want to be in that place where you get your 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 players uh, navigating via the mini map because by God, if they're moving the camera, <laughs> they're going to move it once, right? Uh. And it's going to bring that new frame up, and they're going to do what they need to do <laughs> and get out because God, their God knows they're not panning the map. <laughs> uh, and that's, uh, you know, and it's, I, I, I sort of wonder, 
you know, when I think back to, like, what it was like playing PC games, like, in the mid-90s and everything, like, the shit you'd put up with because you never had a good enough computer ever, uh, and so you're always just used to, like, frame rate just, like, you know, dying for no good reason, and, like, oh, this is a great game, you just sort of have to, like, once you allow for the inertia of the mouse as it tries to, like, you know, scroll toward the, you know, menu item you want, it's fantastic, control's easy. Uh, but now you have so many examples of things just things just working that it makes it very noticeable the moment a game doesn't instantly translate your intent into seamless action. Yeah. If you don't hit a certain responsiveness bar, there's just this huge drag on enjoyment. And that bar is actually really quite high. And, and a lot of strategy games don't hit it. Um, and the thing is, if you're, if you're more modest about what you're going to do with your engine, you can hit that bar easily. Right. Um, it's just, you know, if you're like, well, you know, guess what? We're just going to make a 2D game. You're going to hit that bar. No problem. Right. Yeah. Three, 3D really adds a lot of complexity and a lot of problems. And, you know, a lot of players of strategy games will uh, certainly understand that. And, you know, I've, I've found myself wondering, you know, what, what advantages are there really to 3D? And, <laughs> and it helps it helps on the uh, the immersions uh, side to some extent, but really the the cost of it is so high that yeah, I mean, yeah. I, w- I wonder me, if, if we're going to see some more two D games coming out in the future. Yeah, believe me, if you're hearing of if you're hearing this from me and John, right? Like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's something to be said for that, right? We've been through this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like the devil's advocate. I think that that original. Uh, Sins of a Solar Empire would not have done so well if it wasn't for the the cool explosions and it didn't look so cool. I think that sort of helped the, well, this isn't quite a 4X game, but it still kind of looks like uh, Deep Space Nine um, and an XCOM. I think I think the little presentation bits have sort of helped it helped it get past that sort of uh, that, that niche into the the hundreds of thousands that it did do. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I always remember Sins performing excellently. Like that's it's yes. something that always stood on my mind, and partially like you know they, you know the requirements you know it's just a flat plane you know they're just looking sort of straight down on stuff. It seems like they're really smart about you know kind of some of these these specific limitations they set for themselves so that um, you know that that they wouldn't run into performance problems. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so yeah, I mean that was I think that made a huge difference for them. I think they could have easily killed the project with performance issues. Definitely, and that being said, uh, I would not make a 3D game. Uh, I I cannot see myself doing that for quite some time. Uh, well, there was a third game you mentioned there, Dave, right? Yes, Fallen Enchantress. I mean, should we just skip over it? Does anyone have anything really like? For me, it was kind of I didn't. It never really glommed on. I never glommed onto it, so I'm totally free to pass it by. But. It, some people might want to talk about it. Well, I mean, I'm not sure. Like, it, it's you, you're bringing it up to illustrate your point of games that just sort of like didn't stick with you. Right. It was like these sort of three games I was looking forward to that were all very kind of similar or similar sort of. Uh, my history with gaming would suggest that I would really, really like it, and uh, each were a miss in its own its own sort of way. All right. So, real quickly, I'd, I'd just be interested in hearing uh, what sort what sort of missed the mark for you with uh, Fallen Enchantress. Honestly, I found it to be a little opaque. I never really knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing with the heroes, with the leaders. Um, I, it may have come down to, again, this idea of 
um, not really under getting a clear idea of who the difference between these factions, and it clearly made a big difference with how they how they played and what you're supposed to do with them, and I, it just never. I don't know. I never. I never knew what I was supposed to do. I never had a goal, and that just may be me. Uh, to me, it, it's it's sort of. It, I, I was kind of curious about what you said about how there's these three games that you're looking forward to, and like it suggests a very sort of strong concept, right? Like in the space for you is Masters of Orion, and right. Warlock and Elemental are Masters of Magic, yes. right? Isn't that basically what it Definitely. comes down to? And so the the question is like. Is there something real there, or was it a failing of the game's execution, or is this kind of this like just residual thing where you're going to be continually disappointed by this experience from you know 15 years ago that you know really can't maybe it wasn't what you remembered or it can't be duplicated here? So I just yeah, I, you know, I guess I guess it it could be. I mean, um, the sort of the XCOM that that you know that continually changes, and even uh, uh, you know. Civ Five is something that, or Civ is something that I've that I have, I have uh, sort of grown with, and you know each iteration I think has been relatively unique, and I've been able to to, to parse it for what it is, as opposed to looking backwards. Um, with something like Endless Space, I was able to to look at a game, and Endless Space is a game where I may not have enjoyed, but um, when I played it, I thought about the things that it did right as a designer and what I would do with it. You know, the pilgrims are really interesting in that game. There's some really cool mechanics. That's what I, that's what I sort of glommed onto. Um, you know, Warlock had that sort of, that, that secondary, uh, you know, the, the, the second map, the, the sort of the underworld level. And that was kind of interesting with the portals, albeit maybe it didn't execute very well. Um, but I, I, there was just, you know, it never hit me, uh, the, the Fallen Chantress. For me, it was just a, I think it was just a miss. Uh, I think it was just a personal thing. But I would be interested to know if, like, did 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 anyone here really enjoy it? I liked it, didn't love it. And I definitely I definitely played more of it than the uh, other two games on your, on your trio, uh, Dave. I, I think Elemental and, and, and Fallen Enchantress uh, sort of... I suspect the way they're going to be remembered is going to be is going to be kind of cautionary, uh, because they are this uh, they are these attempts to do a whole bunch of things within the context of a forex game. It's not just a forex; it's you know a, a, a rich narrative RPG. Uh, it's a it's a tactical uh, it, it's a tactical RPG battler like uh, you know Heroes of Might and Magic. It's trying to do all these things. Uh, and I think that does create this problem, and I think it's almost intrinsic to what they're trying to do. It creates this problem of how does all this fit together? Oh, and everything's got to be customizable. Right. Uh, and so you've got so many different goals with this one design that I, I, I can totally see you know, why you had these, had these problems with it. I had some of these same problems, too. I played through them. I got to a point where I, you know, I was uh, enjoying a bit more. Um, I, was, I was enjoying... You know, we're like you know, working with my different sort. You know, creating my little menagerie of heroes and having them lead their armies and go on quests in the world. Um, I never got to a point though where it all felt like it fit together into a co- cohesive whole. Uh, increasingly, I wonder, you know, you know, if if that's even entirely possible. I think Fallen Enchantress did a really admirable job of uh, sort of retrenching and making Elemental coherent. But I'm not sure that I'm not sure you can take all those elements 
and create them into something that fits, uh, you know, really well together uh, without sort of being confusing and off-putting in some ways. I think ultimately something has to get cut or, or you know, there has to be some sort of, like, reconception. I don't think they have the freedom to do that. Um, and I'm not even sure, you know, they wanted to. I think they got, I think they mm-hmm. got a good game out of it. I'll be curious to see what they do with the next one. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think it's an interesting case of trying to combine three or four things that strategy gamers tend to love, and seeing how they just don't. Right. Um, well, I have, I have two games to throw out there before we uh, run out of time here. Yeah. Um, uh, FTL and Battle of the of the Bulge. Okay, I want to actually talk about both of these two, so that's good. <laughs> is 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 FTL a strategy game? No, it's yes. not. Right. It's not. No, it's it's not. Right. It's not a strategy game. Unless you're IGN. Why is it not a okay. strategy game? Why? Okay. Okay. Why? Well, okay, what, what is it? Where's is the it? burden for? It's it's, it's a it's RPG. I think it has more. I think I think it has more, more. Well, okay. Okay. I should back up here. To me, my sort of when I played roguelites, my revelation, my personal revelation with roguelites, because I hadn't really played them a whole lot when I was younger, is when I started playing them. Were like, oh, these are strategy games. Like that—that's how I felt coming from someone who played, you know, Baldur's Gate and you know, Goldbox D and D and you know all that stuff. You know that—that's what to me stood out about roguelikes. So, uh, you know, I understand maybe it, it straddles the line, but I mean, there's definitely—I mean, a, a roguelike is basically an RPG that plays out as a strategy game, right? I mean, oh god, what? Soren's Sorn, so, Sorn, using the Tom Chick definition. Yeah, he's, game, he's got everyone. both hands on <laughs> yeah. the shovel. He's just except. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to get into a semantics. Well, let me talk about my favorite strategy of game of the year, Far Cry Three. Yeah. <laughs> uh. um, no, I think I honestly think if, uh, you know FTL has more in common with like World of Warcraft than it does with with, with uh, th- things that I consider a strategy. Whoa, whoa, hold on. I mean, there. Hold I mean, on. Ulti- ultimately, oh ultimately, well, this game, ultimately, FTL is a game about watching cooldown bars. And and, wow. doing, and and making and making dialogue choices. There's right? a loss. Oh. There, you can lose. You can lose. You usually do lose FTL, right? FTL has loss conditions. You're making oh, that's mutually exclusive got that choices. I mean, these those that's the bread and butter of strategy games, right? Loss conditions, I think, are I think that's bread and butter of games. Well, all right, fine. Right? But, um, I mean, uh, I don't, you know, you're making very specific choice. I mean, in RPGs, you don't lose RPGs, right? You just get bored of RPGs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I suppose so. I don't know. I I like the game. I I was just torn as whether or not because like, because uh, let's ta- actually talk about the game instead of talking about right, what we should talk right. about the game. Bad semantic <laughs> argument. All right, kick it, Soren. Why is it so great? Okay. Well, um, well, I really, uh, I mean, I really liked FTL a lot. Although I did sort of cool down on it when it kind of it, it it hit it popped in my head when we were talking about the whole real time versus possible aspect because mm-hmm. I definitely kind of hit my limit with FTL when I got to the point where I knew what I wanted to do but I wasn't able to execute it fast enough, right? And I right. know that if if I was just jamming the space bar, I could probably pull it off, but um, I didn't necessarily like um, I, I don't like that flow for a game, right? Um, I, I wish that they had found. Um, I, I think they should just have had. They should have just had a lot more, a lot more increments in the number of difficulty levels they give you. So you know, people could find that sweet spot themselves of you know how 
how tense they want want the situation because I feel like you know again any any game where you're sort of constantly feeling like you need to pause it I feel that's kind of a fail from pacing. But what I really liked about the game was a different issue of pacing, was that they're able to um, compress compress this this you know really interesting. Uh, you know, challenging strategic experience into something that could be like, what, like an hour, hour and a half, you know, where you feel like you're going through, you're making a lot of decisions, you're going through a lot of events, um, and it goes really, really very, uh, very quickly. Um, and um, and beyond that, you you have a sense that, you know, every step you're taking is important. You know, every single decision you're making, because because, you know, it has that whole roguelike thing. You know, it's not like you're, you know, in a traditional roguelike, you know, you're, so you see your food ticking down, right? Where here, it's like you see the, you know, the enemy fleet coming from behind you. Um, and that's perhaps even, you know, even a better mechanic because you know you're only going to get so many moves before the turns is, the game is going to end, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything you do is important. And I mean, that, that's to me why, like, I, I never thought about, you know, semantics. It's just like, this is, this is very, very strategic, the stuff you're going through. I, I mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily, kill you know just completely succeed in each of those aspects you know a lot of the times you're making decisions sometimes it felt like it was perhaps a little random right but um but i love that aspect of the pacing for sure mm, roguelikes <laughs> so i hesitate to get into battle of the bulge uh, too much because actually uh we talked about it just last week um, so we, we have the group get together. Boy, we, I didn't know you were into that, Soren. We could, we would have, uh, but, but real quickly, uh, so why did that, cause that was a real, that was a real late year release. Why did that sure. uh, jump to sort of the top of the charts for you? Well, um, there's a few things. I mean, I, it's, I've, the thing I've enjoyed the most out of my iPad so far is what a great machine it is for, you know, board and card game card game conversions, right? And I think there's a lot of other people who are in the same boat. Um, you know, it allows you to get exposure to so many games, play them so much, so much more quickly, play them asynchronously with people, play these games that you might not ever be able to play otherwise, right? Um, and that's been that's been really fantastic. Um, but at the same time, it has sort of suggested this other possibility, which is you know all the games that you know, I've been really happy to play on the iPad had to start off as board games, right? But it should be possible to sort of make a game that's native to the iPad, but still kind of has that board game soul. Um, and I think that's kind of what kind of is going to be the next the next wave, the next generation of, of games, you know, of, of games for people who like, who like board and card games on the iPad. And I feel like Battle of the Bulge is one of the really first notable examples of that. Um, because, you know, it's just so brilliant to have that map that fits perfectly on the iPad screen, right? Um, and, you know, the decisions are nice and chunky. It's, it's not, um, you, can, you really can learn it as you play. Uh, like, I know, I'm, I know Bruce commented in his review that, you know, once, when he actually got around to reading the manual, he realized he pretty much already knew all of it, right? And that's, that's really a pretty high compliment for a game's uh, interface and, and usability. Um, the it's got some pretty interesting mechanics the whole uh you know instead of letting you know one side take all their moves and the other side take all their moves um you know having this sort of like interlaced movement that is somewhat random is pretty interesting um so i and, you know and just flat out the core gameplay this this concept of you know you have to sort of you know you select these areas to activate the units um 
but you can't activate units from different territories at the same time, right? So you're constantly kind of trying to group up your units so that the next time around you can do something with them all together, right? Like that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I think kind of the the thing I'm disappointed about with the game is is that. Um, and this is this is also sort of a compliment. Is I, I feel like they made this really neat system, but I felt like I pretty much got to the point of like, well, okay, where is the random map button, right? Like I enjoy, <laughs> I am enjoying this this gameplay. I'm enjoying this game system, and I don't want to just be arbitrarily limited to this one historical battle, right? Because there's really no reason to it if you have this really solid set of rules. Uh, <laughs> I- I think uh, sort of this this year has been sort of bookended by two iOS games uh, for like in that space, and that was Hero Academy was launched I think like the first week of January, which was that this little tactic, very simple, you know, not particularly great, but it sort of it had it sort of captured the zeitgeist there for for a couple months, and then it ended with Battle of the Bulge and. Uh, I honestly thought this was going to be a year where strategy games would really make inroads on uh, the iPad, at least in terms of commercial viability. And it's been a little dis- discouraging that that hasn't been the case. And uh, I would love for for someone to take that that notion that that uh, that we can sort of expand it, like XCOM, and take this idea of like a random map or something like that that Soren was sort of said, and then and actually execute it and be successful. And and I. And I'm hoping I can do it, but I don't. I'm 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 a little bit. It concerns me when something so great like Battle of the Bulge uh, just is sort of dead on arrival. Wait, what? It is? Oh yeah. Well, it's I mean, I, it's I, complete. It's off the charts. Like it's it's done a couple of thousand copies, but it's it's sort of now it is lost in a morass sure. by, by this point. I mean, I I have no uh, idea what they should have expected for that game. It, it does seem yeah. like it's it's the quality level is higher than I would have. I feel like kind of we deserve yeah. <laughs> for a war game, and I mean I'm enjoying I'm, I'm really loving it. But uh, what are um, they charging for that? By the way, I'm just curious. ten dollars. Ten dollars. Yeah. yeah. Is that? Is, do you think that's part of the problem? Is just the iOS allergy to money? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I think so. That's I, you know this... that's a that's a really interesting comparison if you compare Hero Academy to Battle of the Bulge because they're mm-hmm. they're on really opposite ends of the extreme in so many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously one one is ten dollars, the other is free, right? Um, and uh, you know, in many ways, I mean, I feel like Battle of the Bulge has really strong game design, just pure straight up game design. Whereas I feel like you know Hero Academy is does not. Is, I don't think it's really that strong in sort of classical uh, design. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the games are, are often far too symmetrical. Um, th- there's just not a lot of gr- uh, sort of grit there um, to, to make the games very interesting. But wh- where they differ is that Hero Academy, they just put the pedal to the metal as far as asynchronous design. You know, mm-hmm. They did everything they could to make the game design work great asynchronously. Um, you know, they have that whole system where you can kind of, you have, you know, you have five actions and you can, you can redo your actions as many times as you want to. Right. Um, and so you're never kind of afraid to try something out. Uh, I mean, that, that comes at the cost of, of randomness and, you know, a whole bunch of other things. Um, but that really makes sort of asynchronously, asynchronous play approachable to a lot of people. Uh, Battle of the Bulge, on the other hand, you can play it asynchronously, um, but, you know that whole interleave turn thing where you're kind of making one move, one move, and the other mm-hmm. guy makes another move. That's exactly what you don't want to do if you want to make yep. an asynchronous game. Mm-hmm. You know, you want your each person's turns to be as meaty as possible, right? Yep. Um, 
you want you got to give like three four minutes of sitting down and thinking right exactly um i mean i'm sure that the battle of the bulge system would be great for face-to-face play you know but uh but you know you don't want it's the same reason why t- ticket ride doesn't work really asynchronously you know it's, it's you know the turns there's just too many turns in the game they go just they go just too fast um and battle of the bulge are the problem so i think you know hero academy battle of the bulge you know they're just you know on these sort of opposite ends of the pole you know where um i think bulge is really a triumph in sort of classical war game design they, they solved a lot of problems they have a lot to be to be proud of but it's not it's not really it, it may be built for the ipad but it's not built for you know the way people are playing multiplayer games on the ipad which mm. is a, a shame or buying them on the ipad mm-hmm. <laughs> which which is too bad i mean the games could be a lot healthier if they were all ten dollars for sure mm-hmm. um but what are you gonna do yeah i mean hearing hearing that it's not doing well is 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 definitely a shame. Um, I, I have a few qualms with the game, but uh, I agree pretty much 100% with what you said about it, Soren, the, the production quality, the, the interface, uh, the, the style of game. Uh, it's it's really well done, and I'd love to see more more of that sort of thing in the future. But, you know, looking ahead to 2013 and beyond for strategy games, I really, I, I don't know if the iOS market that that's, you know, so big now and, and getting bigger really will ever work for strategy games uh there have obviously been some that are good and some that have done well but if you if you look at um you know as you said a strategy game uh in particular battle bulge is a good example are really well designed tight games and uh you know that takes a while to make it takes a while to play and polish and balance and then you kind of want to sell it for you know more than a dollar and you know how everything aligns i just don't know if that's if it's ever going to pan out on the on the mobile market yeah well yeah and the, the unfortunate thing is that kickstarter it doesn't seem to have really worked very well for mobile games at all right because uh, having kickstarter lets people who make more niche games hedge their bets because they know going in yep. to it that they already have a certain set level of or essentially pre-orders, right? Um, and so far, it seems like most of the projects that have been mobile-focused have really failed miserably. Um, but I think maybe that could change over time once it just becomes a more mature market. I, I don't know. But yeah, economically, it's 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 pretty problematic right now. So really quickly before we uh, wrap up, what are you guys looking forward to uh, this year? It could be a game or just something you want to see. Uh, you know, what, what's your what's your like? May, what, what are you most hopeful for uh, this year in strategy? For me, it's definitely uh, the the role of Kickstarter and and kind of the resurgence of the indie movement. Uh, there are a lot of games that have been funded through Kickstarter to this point, and the number just keeps going up. And we're seeing some pretty interesting things. Uh, some of the games are, are kind of more hearkening back on uh, nostalgia, uh, but there are a few that are innovating in some interesting ways. Uh, Banner Saga is a, a game that was funded on Kickstarter. Right. Um, I forget how long ago. Um, I think it was earlier this year, or I guess 2012. Uh, and they're now uh, getting pretty close to releasing. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and there are more coming out. So I think this is going to be a really, really good time for strategy gaming. And, you know, we were saying that last year and the year before, but I think the, the broader the market can be and the more types of games and the more games in total that are being made, the, the better. Uh, it just gives us more variety and more of a chance of getting some awesome products. Yeah, I think it's exciting that I'm pretty sure that a year from now there will be a lot of games I was really excited about that I had knew nothing about 
today, right? I feel like that was definitely true last year. I you know, knew nothing about Unity of Command or FTL at the beginning of the year, and uh, you know, I'm sure there's going to be even more of those next year. Uh, I think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go mainstream. Uh, I think uh, Company Heroes 2, like, fingers crossed, come out. Okay, oh, come yes, on. Please. Just just hang in there. <laughs> two more months, two more months, two more months. You know, that's, I got to... Uh, that's, that's me with THQ's entire lineup, by oh, the way. It's but, just this, like, cut candle lighting vigil. And, like, like you know, shout-outs to all my friends back at Relic. I, you hold on, it's gonna work out. <laughs> um, and uh, and and then total total war Rome two are sort of the two things. Uh, just I you know I'm a sucker for that sort of like that lineage stuff, and uh, that was one of the big things I liked about the first Rome total war was the stuff they did that the sort of this the whatever their their sort of simple system was, and I'm I'm kind of hoping they take that and push it a little bit more. So those are the two that I'm I'm up on. Yeah, it almost kind of seems like the the strategy lineup for 2013 is a little bit lighter than it has been recently. Uh, it seemed like 2012 was kind of a banner year, but 2013 seems a little bit uh, a little bit more sparse by comparison. Do you guys agree with that, or are there, are there things I'm missing? I guess there's like Heart of the Swarm, right? That's coming out, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely <laughs> this coming year out. for sure. <laughs> I, I, Blizzard. Who knows, right? Like it could be they they could cancel it for all I know. So that's coming out in Dota, right? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah I guess Dota Two might be actually the strategy game of the year. Who knows? Yeah, it, it might be. It might be released. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever the hell that means in that context. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I I think it does feel a little lighter uh, next year than this year. But I I think. That's an unfair comparison. It's it's like this was you know this was a bumper crop year, mm-hmm. uh, and next year it's it's probably a little more back to normal. Uh, you know uh, the sequel to Wargame European Escalation should come out, uh, Airland Battle, uh, so that should be cool. But yeah, oh. I doubt I doubt it's going to be quite the standout year that this one was. Uh, but you know again we just got off of a very good year. Hmm. I actually didn't know they were making a sequel to that. It's uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because uh, both uh, Ruse and European Escalation afterwards are were pretty innovative games and and really had some interesting concepts. It never seemed like um, Ruse did well, and and European Escalation uh, just seemed to kind of fall off the radar. Um, and I guess it's kind and of a shame. You're, but you're wondering how they're still around. Yeah. They're the double fine of strategy game developers. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. They they, they got away from Ubisoft uh, and are with Focus Home, and I don't know. I mean, it's it's all about expectations, right? It's all about like what sort of scale your business is going to be at. Mm-hmm. And I suspect they were uh, they were actually not that ambitious uh, with War Game Europe Escalation. I think in, in a lot of ways, and I, I think that's one reason they were able to move on uh, really quickly to a uh, to a full sequel while continuing to release uh, free free DLC. Uh, so I mean, they they you know it's they might have they might have found a way to, uh you know they might have found their their appropriate uh you know targets and they might just be able to hit them now. Let's hope uh, so. What does paradox have in the chamber? Uh boy, a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> EU four. Bet, <laughs> right. It involves territories. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, EU four, um, which I, I, I saw briefly. It looks like an improved uh, EU three. Right. Okay. Um, is that that's, a that's is cool. that a twenty thirteen title? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh. whew, hmm. I think so. 
Yeah. Uh-huh. If it is, uh, I completely blanked on that. But yeah, yeah obviously that would is. be one of the big releases. Uh, of the year. March of the Eagles, uh, which is sort of a Napoleonic strategy game. Uh, then another sort of a, um, uh, a Hearts of Iron expansion type thing uh, that's more realistic and set in the Cold War. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, so I, so I think from their development studio, uh, the big thing is probably going to be uh, EU4, and uh, the smaller thing is going to be uh, March of the Eagles, and I'm not sure. Uh, boy, I feel like I'm forgetting something right there. I'm not. Anyway, uh, I, I don't know what their publishing lineup is like, though, uh, too right. much. You know, it's... And, and to be fair, that's much more of a crapshoot, right? As a publisher, I think they're trying to diversify beyond strategy. Uh, and, I mean, you know, from the publishing standpoint, they need to have a better year than they did last year. And then 2013, Sorn, you want to announce anything? <laughs> uh, I wish. Dribble uh, uh, in your shoot. That's all I can do. <laughs> so I guess, you know, the, the thing I, re- I really hope to see, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you former Forex people have heard something, uh, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I really badly want an expansion for XCOM. Uh, that can just like introduce some like actual variety mm-hmm. into the game. Like uh, you know, doesn't even, like I don't care if it's a total expansion. It's just like Terror from the Deep or something like that, or if it just like creates new forks for the campaign to follow and you know new stuff to play around with. I just feel like I want more diversity in my play experience than I've got right now, and that's really what I want any sort of expansion to bring. And my hope is the game did well enough that we will see some kind of big expansion like that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of people holding their breath on hearing exactly how well XCOM does do, you know, once we're through the holidays. Uh, I mean, I really hope it does really well. Um, and I know there's a lot of people at Fraxis who are still very, in, you know, enthusiastic about it. So um, I'm sure I'm sure if they can, they will. Mm-hmm. You hear you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, I actually I don't I honestly don't know what the plans are. But one one interesting thing to consider is. The fact that uh, the console release of XCOM was such a big deal, and you don't really see expansions on console games, so um, you know it might be not as good of idea to wait for a proper PC expansion. But you know maybe there'll be a sequel in a year or so. I, like I said, honestly, I don't know. Right. I just want some more maps. Like, oh God, yes, please. <laughs> just, just you know something. They did a great job on those maps. They really did. Like they're they're, they're mm. lovely constructs. But the price for that is that if I see that rail yard one more goddamn time, yeah, uh, <laughs> we are gonna have words. Uh, no, it'll just be words of love because I'm gonna keep playing it regardless. But still, uh, all right. So uh, that does it for our show tonight. Uh, my girlfriend has been patiently uh, waiting with dinner prepared for like the last 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, so I should probably wrap this up. Uh, thanks so much for being, uh, you know, regular parts of the show in 2012 and uh, look forward to having you back a lot more in 2013. Uh, thanks for joining me tonight, fellas. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be on. Thanks, man. It was a lot of fun. Always an uh, absolute pleasure. All right. And we'll be back next week uh, with the regular panel talking about bit more about 2012 and in particular uh you know sort of forecasting into 2013 uh thanks as always to our producer michael hermes for producing tonight's episode uh in the wake of our holiday absence he has been given a lot of work because we are frantically trying to catch up uh so as always uh, my appreciation for what he does every week um that'll do it for tonight's show uh good night everybody good night good night, good night.